restored back, by God, them suckers slipped up behind us. One guy had all the guns and and uh, and and he couldn't do nothing about it. Is either give up or get killed, you know. Oh man, that was so. Uh, you know, you're listening to a World War II vet. Uh, when they're talking about when using words like "by golly, those suckers," and they're referring to the German Wehrmacht. So, uh, who you just heard from there is Keith Muntz, and he was a staff sergeant during World War II in the European Theater of Operations. He was a squad leader in Company F of the 377th Infantry Regiment of the 95th Infantry Division that landed in Europe on September of 1944. They were also known as the Iron Men of yeah. Metz. So. We got a treat for you today. We've got a hundred and year, a hundred year old uh, staff sergeant named Keith Muntz that we want to share his stories with you. So I'm Tony Lupo, and I'm Ryan Fairfield, and welcome to the next episode, the latest edition of the Warrior Next Door. This is the Warrior Next Door podcast where we share oral histories from veterans whose stories provide an intimate look at world history and how much it still affects us today. All the veterans featured were interviewed by your co-hosts while serving as volunteers for the Library of Congress. Our interviews, over 200 in total, were conducted with veterans who live in our cities, our neighborhoods, and often right next door to us. You can listen to the full-length, unedited interviews from each veteran we feature on our YouTube and Facebook pages. Come join us. So, Ryan, how how were you able to meet and interview Keith Muntz? So, Keith Muntz um, uh, lived in the the town of Greenfield, Illinois. Uh, Greenfield is in Greene County. Uh, It's about 20 miles away from where I grew up. Hmm. Um, in central Illinois. And so I've got a lot of family. Uh, a lot of my mom's side of my family grew, you know, lived there. My mom grew up over there. And I have some aunts and uncles that still live over there. And they reached out to me and said, hey, there's a, a guy here that's 100. He's going to be 100 years old. Hmm. He's got a fascinating story. You should try to come interview him as soon as you can. You know, he's 100. Yeah. So I said, sure. Next time I get home, um, I will definitely do that. And so when I... Um, when I was home for Christmas, I think it was Christmas of 2021, I got to go over to his house, and uh, his daughter arranged all this, and I sat down with Keith, never met the guy before in my life, um, mm. and was able to interview him. And it was, you know, I've never interviewed a 100-year-old veteran before. Yeah. Um, but um, he was he was a hoot. I'll just say that. There's a World War II term for you. But he was he was just a super nice guy, smiled a lot, you know, and and you know, you'll hear whenever you listen to the clips here, you know, um his inflection is not as tight as it once was when we were all younger and everything and uh he has some, some trouble remembering some of the things that he's done, but what we have here to kind of aid his story, his his audio interview is a couple of things. We've got a two-page bio that he wrote himself several many years ago when he was in a little bit better shape. Um, so we'll be reading from that. And then we also have the 95th Infantry Division 377th Regimental Handbook, their history book for their time in World War II. And that provides 
a whole bunch of information on their their training, their path over there to Europe, and so on. And so, um, so we're going to try to take this interview and uh, really try to put put a lot of color to it for everybody to listen to to kind of understand more of, of Keith's story. And so before we dive into the clip, she said he's 100 years old and had trouble remembering things at times and whatnot. I, I kind of hope I'm standing and be able to smile and have an interview when I'm 100 <laughs> years old. And so I, you and I have talked about this in the past. We've interviewed a lot of people who were in their 80s, 90s. I don't know about 100, though. And um, and it's it to me, I, I marvel more at what they remember <laughs> than, right. than what they have forgotten. So I'm, I'm really looking into this. And you said that this was in Greenfield. How far away from your hometown is Greenfield? It's about, I'd say about 20 miles or so. It's only about a 20-minute drive, but it's across across the grain fields and hog confinements across <laughs> across country to get there. But uh, but no, really tight-knit town. Um, they, for his 100th birthday, they actually threw him a parade oh. and had a, they went, they went by his house, they brought him outside and he sat on his porch and the whole town went by and it was just a, such a heartwarming thing for him. And so- uh, and now, when, when you met him for the first time, did he remember when you were drinking and driving and crashed your Camaro into his into his front yard, <laughs> or did he forget about that? <laughs> I, we do not need more stories of me out there than there are true ones, okay? And that's not a true one. I did no, not do not. that. <laughs> I, I, I made some of that up, audience. Uh, <laughs> not all of it. any rate, dude, it was, uh, I, I thought it was really cool. I remember you were, uh, we were talking about, you know, hey, there's this guy that I got connected with. I'm going to be interviewing him and, and it's, it's going to be really awesome to be able to do that. And for the additional materials that will be provided uh, that help kind of uh, illuminate uh, his experiences better. I just want to re-remind our listeners, we have a website now, thewarriornextdoor.com. Yes. Go to it. Go to it. We What we do is every time we feature a new veteran, there's a separate page for that veteran that you can click on. And not only does it have links to the, the unedited, full-length, videotaped interview Without us yapping, as as one of our critics uh, accused us of doing, that we yap too much. <laughs> so if you want to listen to the whole thing, go ahead and do it. It'll also have links to the podcast, and we'll go ahead and uh, link um, the PDFs and the files so you can actually read more about some of the experiences that he had outside of the podcast. So that's really all I have to say, Ryan. Do we want to Great. kick this sucker off? Sure thing. So what we'll do first, you know, as we always kick off these interviews, uh, we ask the veteran – you know, where they were when they heard about Pearl Harbor. And so uh, we'll, uh, we'll start in from there. I'll just start and ask you, where were you when you heard about Pearl Harbor, Mr. Munts, and how did that affect uh, that, you? That day was on a Sunday, I know, and I was in Whitehall, and this, uh, they said they bombed Pearl Harbor. Well, I didn't ever even knew where Pearl Harbor was back then, you know. 100 years old. And he knows the day of the week that Pearl Harbor happened. Uh, I don't think we've had a veteran share that with us exactly that way. I think they basically tell us that, hey, Pearl Harbor happened, and it was – what a lot of them say is what he did say, which is they weren't exactly sure where Pearl, where Pearl Harbor was. A lot like a lot of people in the United States didn't know where Kuwait was when it was invaded back in <laughs> 1989 or whenever it was. So, um, yeah, it's um, – it's, it's, uh, Obviously, an important event, and it's a good place for us to start off our interviews to find out where they were. Well, where was he living at the time? 
Um, he was living in uh, out in the country between Greenfield and Carrollton, Illinois, which is just you know ten miles, fifteen miles away from where this interview took place. Uh, kind of out in the middle of the country, some lot of little small little villages here and there and stuff. And he was a farm boy, so he lived. He was a farmer, a nice strapping young, you know, healthy kid and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, it's amazing. Even at a hundred years old, it just goes to show you the impact that. Pearl Harbor had. It's just like us with 9-11. It's just like our parents with when JFK was shot. Everybody remembers the date, that where they were, the time sometimes, that things that, that, that they remember things happening. And uh and for this guy at a hundred, he still remembers the day of the week and what he was doing and everything. So awesome. Um, yeah, we'll take it from there. I getting kind of forgetful on so much stuff, but uh Trying to, I'm looking at your right up here. Back when I could remember, I'm I'm kind of slipping now, you know. (laughs) That's okay. That's okay. We're all getting older, you know. (laughs) So uh, when when so after the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, did did you enlist in the military or were you drafted into the army? I was drafted to the Army. Uh-huh. I was one of the first. The, 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 they had been taking them about 21 years old. And my group, I was in the first group that, that lowered the age to 19. And I was one of the, one of the guys that first went out of Green County at 19. Really? Yeah. 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 So did you, were you happy with being chosen to go in the Army? Well, yeah, I, I knew I was going to have to go sometime or another. Sure. You know, uh, whenever they drafted you in, they give you a week to go home and take care of any business or something like that. Mm-hmm. Well, I didn't have no business. So uh, whenever they draft me in, I'd, I went down to... Down to Texas, there I went down there to my basic training, and mm-hmm. uh, I was with the with that company all the way through till I got back and got captured, and yeah, uh, so well, it's a little foreshadowing, huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it it sounds like he's going to be a POW listeners, and that's going to be a really interesting part of the latter part of the uh, clips that Ryan's pulled. Um, but yeah, nineteen-year-old country kid, uh, you know, Central Illinois, getting drafted, uh, going into the army. Sounds like we've heard that before, haven't we? That's correct. Um, you know, he's talking about when he talks about his training and 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 everything. Um, you know, he's talking about the ninety-fifth Infantry Division and the three hundred seventy-seventh Infantry Regiment. Um, this group, this this division and regiment. Uh, were activated for the first time in the war in July of 1942. And he was in the first group of this regiment. He was in the, 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 the founding group. Um, and so, uh, what I'm going to do now is kind of just read a little bit from the infantry history, um, just to kind of give you an idea of some of the background on this and everything. Um, so first of all, you know, one of the things um, that they mention in the unit history is that the Midwest sent most sent the most um, people to this infantry regiment. Hmm. Um, 
that states in the in the actual history that they were not professional soldiers. The majority of the men who stood there that day, whenever the the unit was activated, were were not professional. They were prior to donning their khakis. They had been recruited from all paths of life. Most of them had taken the oath at Midwest induction centers, just like Keith. Mm-hmm. And despite fresh new uniforms, they were still just clerks, machinists, miners, lumbermen, farmers, students, right off the train and still confused about the maze of the reception centers they'd just been through. And so what year would this have been that he was inducted into the Army? So it had been 1942 because, you know, his that this unit was uh, was activated in July of 42. And so this was at Camp Swift, which was in Texas. And that's where it, it that's where it nucleated. That's where everything went. So they all came there to Texas, and that's what he talks about how he got sent to Texas, and uh, that's where he went through his training. And one of the things that they mention about the basic training in the, in it in the actual uh, unit history is they state that the basic training was rugged, close order drills, calisthenics, bayonet drills, running assault courses, rifle marksmanship. Grueling hikes, field field drills were employed to weave closely knit, coordinated teams, classes in map reading, camouflage, cover and concealment, sanitation, first aid, military courtesy, gas warfare, infantry tactics um, also were part of the program. Uh, The men were sent to divisional schools for training as radio men, mechanics, cooks, bakers, Mm -hmm. and from the training companies, the men reverted to regular companies where they were assigned to platoons and squads. Yeah, so pretty much everything you'd need to run a self-contained unit, which was a division. So just for audience, by 1942, obviously the war was in full effect. This was summer of 42, I think you said, and he's in Texas. So that's the other thing we had to deal with was the heat. Uh, yes. I know it can get hot and humid in Illinois, but I think Texas is a whole nother level of what of what hot is. And what what the United States decided to do when um, uh, we declared war on Japan and then Germany declared war on us is to raise 99 infantry divisions. Mm. And each division has about 16,000 men. And each division is a self-contained fighting unit. The idea behind the division is you can pick it up, put it anywhere in the world, and it could it could it could feed itself. It could fix its own equipment. It could it could uh, it had medical facilities. It was a self-contained unit. Each of the three regiments had about uh, three thousand men, and it was those regiments that were raised that oftentimes had men that were raised from a certain area. We talked about an infantry regiment. Uh, that fought on D-Day that was raged primarily in the Virginia area. Uh, well, this particular regiment, it sounds like, we're, like you said, were Midwestern boys. So it wasn't uncommon for the regiments to feel some sort of connection to each other because they oftentimes were from similar areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had more of a connection to their company and their regiment than they would have at the division level, which was, you know, that's where the the, the head honchos were. So, uh, yeah, interesting to, to see that he was one of the later divisions of the 99 that they raised, the 95th, uh, that were brought into action to get ready to go to either Europe or Japan. Well, and it's interesting, uh, you mentioned Europe or Japan. Whenever his unit was formed, they thought they were going to be going to Africa. Ah, yeah. So they were sent to Texas to to train in the dry heat and the hill country, not far outside of Austin. Yep. And then they would then get transferred out to uh, the Mojave Desert out in California, and they would train out there. And then um, after a while, they were then sent back across country um, to uh, 
to uh, uh, Indian Town, uh, yeah, Indian Town Gap. They were all over the place, you know. And as the war unfolded, uh, their their mission went from being likely going to North Africa to likely uh, going to to Europe, to France, to Normandy. Yeah, and just so, really quick for our audience, the reason North Africa would have been a thing is the first. Allied offensive operation against Germany, where the United States was involved, was Operation Torch, which was North Africa, which occurred through the entirety of 1942 and wrapped up around 1943-ish. So, yeah, makes sense. Give these guys some desert training. And it sounds to me like by the time their training was over, they probably weren't needed in Africa anymore. So, yeah, let's go ahead and carry on and see what he's doing next. So more about his training here from, from Keith. So whenever you were in your training for the Army... Were you an infantry man? Infantry, okay. yeah. So, and we'll walk. We had to walk a lot, yeah. <laughs> so were you in... I was used to that. Yeah, were you? I was a, I raised on a farm, and my legs were strong, and never had any problem. And uh, a lot of the boys that came out of the city and had never worked very much... They just could hardly take it, you know. I'm sure. And I helped carry two... Other guys, I've carried two guns at one time going on marches if I can. Really? Because uh, those four guys, they shouldn't have been in there. <laughs> oh, it sounds like, sounds like he was country strong, man, and that country yeah. strong is a thing. So like you said, young, strapping, 19-year-old dude that apparently knew enough to know that he, he had the sort of physical conditioning that maybe um, a city kid wouldn't have had at that time, especially being raised in the Great Depression. I mean, you think about farming today, you know, it's still, it's still a, a physical lifestyle. You know, a, you're, you're very active. You're out working, you know, long days, long nights, you know, especially when you're getting your crops out and everything. But think about what it would have been like back then you know, in the late 1930s, early 1940s, when you didn't have a uh, air-conditioned cab to sit in, you know, right. you were much less, maybe not even a tractor, you know, yeah. a, lot, a lot of these guys didn't, you know, still didn't have the full-on machinery, you know, uh, they might have still been using horse-drawn teams for some of their field work and everything. So, it's no wonder he had strong legs. I bet you he was used to carrying heavy sacks of feed every day and, you know, uh, bailing bucking bales and walking beans and all that kind of stuff, you know, that, that people do out that way. So, um, doesn't surprise me at all. He, you know, and look, he lived to be a hundred, so he must've had a good upbringing, huh? So <laughs> yeah, I guess all that, all that fertilizer and organic farming, I guess, or inorganic farming didn't, <laughs> didn't seem to affect his, uh, uh, how long he lived, his longevity. And we've interviewed most of the people back in World War II would have been farmers at that time. It was more of an agrarian society. And a lot of people we interviewed talk about that. You're right. It wasn't mechanized. It was mules. It was horses. It was oxen. Uh, it, small tractors, right? But not the sure. big green John Deere's you see. Uh, these guys and gals uh, would have had big families to be on the farm. They would have worked 12, 14 hours a day, six days a week. Sunday was their only day off. That's when they would have gotten their bath. I've, I've heard a number of them say they'd have one proper bath a week. And they would take that bath on uh, Saturday night or Sunday morning and go to church. And for people who may go to church or other sort of sort of activities like that, um, it's not uncommon to have something like a potluck where people will bring in food. I'm ashamed to say that when my wife and I were uh, taking our kids to church when we lived in Sand Springs, Oklahoma, that we didn't really like the potlucks. We were we were content to say, yeah, you know, let's just let's just go out to the Italian restaurant or whatever and get something to eat. 
Or Ron's. Or Ron's, <laughs> totally, right? And, and so, but we would because it was a social event. We didn't do it every, every week. But back then, that potluck during the Great Depression would have been the best food, the largest feast, the most calories that, that just about everyone in that congregation would have had. And when I had a chance to interview some people and they would talk about that, you know, it made me feel a little guilty, a little soft, I guess, for how we live now where, you know, those sort of things are becoming, you know, less and less popular. But back then it was almost a form of communalism to be able to share food, to let people have like several different types of pies instead of just the one that their mom could have eked out every couple of months. So at any yeah. rate, yeah, really, really amazing that uh, the, the sort of the change in a lifestyle occurred in this case over the past hundred years. So in this next clip, uh, Keith's going to talk about um, some older recruits that were actually part of his regiment and uh, how they fared. You know, I mean, the first, when they first started is up to 37, this one man, he, uh, I don't know how come they kept him. I think they let him out pretty quick. Oh, as a 52-year-old man, I feel not offended <laughs> that he's calling someone 37 younger. <laughs> but I, I have to say that the 37-year-old version of myself definitely wasn't as spry as the 19-year-old version of myself. How did, were these all draftees? Did they draft a 37-year-old into the military? Well, apparently, like he was talking at the very, very beginning in the very first clip, he said he was one of the uh, – they, they actually had to revise – you know the at this point in the war. Well, actually, when he when he got in, I don't know if he got in in forty two. Actually, now that I think of it, I know they were activated in forty two. But um, he was talking about how they had to revise down the age, the 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 age groups and stuff like that. So that he when he was brought in, his group that he that he came in with was actually some of the younger guys, and he was one of the first guys chosen out of Greene County, from what I understand. So. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, um, the way they did they did things back then, um, you know, thirty seven would have been. I would have thought, you know, kind of like over in Germany, whenever you're kind of getting towards, you know, you're running out of guys, you're running out of recruits, and you got to start bringing in the home guard. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's that's what I would think you'd be looking at. But I, they must have revised that down. Well, and so I know earlier in the war they had higher recruiting standards. And they probably wouldn't have brought a 37-year-old in, but later they would have. But the 37-year-old could have joined. I mean, there's nothing stopping people under 50 or 45, whatever the cutoff was back then, from joining and, and going to the military. And a lot of people did that. And we have interviewed <clears> – <throat> no, he wasn't 100 when we interviewed him, but he lived to be older than 100 – Yvonne Griffin. Yeah. And if uh, if you guys haven't, if our audience hasn't heard uh, that podcast, it's just one episode. It's on a, a, a basically a – a black man from the South who was drafted into the army during World War II, a segregated army, and what his experiences were in Texas. Um, and uh, and he was, what, 30? He was in his 30s he was, when he was yeah. drafted. And he said uh, during our podcast that he felt like he was a snafu. He had a younger brother, and he never was drafted, and they think they got their names mixed up, and that the younger <laughs> brother didn't go. And He was married. I mean, when he went there— so anyway, I think that um, I, I I don't know. Uh, apparently, the guy made it through boot and went to serve in the service. So in some ways, you could say the thirty-seven year old 
was pretty hardcore because he had a lot yeah. more to overcome physically <laughs> than the young guys. Yeah, let's hear for the old guys. Yeah, yeah exactly. On, you, know? <laughs> you know, maybe we suck at what we're doing. Maybe we can't carry as much, but it's harder on us, and we're still there doing it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so a little bit more from Keith on some of the training and some of the actually some of the training that he went through when he was uh, moved out to um, what was it? It was Camp Coxcomb. California. He was there from October 43 through February 44. In the wintertime, that first winter, we was lucky. We ha- they took us out to California. Had a big tent city out there. That's where they trained everybody out there. But it was nice. At least it wasn't cold in the wintertime, yeah. you know. Yeah. So then, then after the winter was over, the Spring started to come. Well, I think it was February. Pretty sure it was. They took us clean. A whole company, whole division, clean across the road door towards uh, uh, Massachusetts. Yeah, he's actually uh, skipping uh, a little bit there. When you look at the unit history, when they left Camp Coxcomb in California, uh, they left there February '44. Then they went to Indian Town Gap, Pennsylvania. They arrived there in uh, late February of 44, and they were there through July of 44. And then in July of 44, and in Indian Town Gap, that's where they were kind of gathering their, uh, you know, doing some final training, getting prepared for, uh, you know, Indian Town Gap, Pennsylvania. Think about the change in scenery and the change in geography yeah. that you would have, topography, climate, and everything. That's going to be more like, Europe, I would say, more like France and maybe Germany. Um, So they were getting geared up for going over to Europe at that point. This was obviously, like I said, summer of 44, right as D-Day had happened. They also got their 30-day furloughs to go home and see family before they shipped out and went overseas. So from there, they went to Camp Miles Standish. Uh, everybody goes through Camp Miles Standish before you get on the boat and you go overseas. And they were there from they were there from July twenty fifth of forty four until August 9th of forty four, and that's when they actually left on the boat. So what we'll do now is, uh, you know, Keith actually talks about uh, the the going overseas and and actually uh, the trip across the ocean and everything. They took us. Across the country, uh, that's where we left out of Boston. That, that big boat had over over three thousand people on it. You know, wow. and if they'd ever sunk that, they'd been uh, the Germans would play around that port up there, Massachusetts, and uh, try to get them. Mm. But they finally put a stop to that, and, and then they so we. If I'd have been in, oh, maybe six months or a year ahead, I might probably wouldn't have been here, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, so it sounds like what he's saying was he probably did en- enlist or was drafted a little bit later. Maybe it was 43 instead of 42. And a lot of the war had occurred. Uh, we're talking Italy, Sicily, North Africa, all the stuff going right. on in Asia. Uh, D-Day had already occurred. So it sounds to me like what he's saying is a lot of the war was fought. It wasn't over. Uh, he knew he could die, but he was glad that, you know, because of his age and what happened, that he was coming in. So it's a little timeline for our audience. He was coming into the war at a point when the United States and their allies were advancing on all fronts, everywhere. Italy was already out of the war. Japan was in retreat. 
Germany was in retreat. The Russians were squeezing the German Wehrmacht uh, from the east, and we were squeezing them from the west with the landings um, on Normandy during D-Day. So unlike some of the other individuals that we've featured on our podcast so far that came into the war very early, and for the first year, year and a half, things did not go well for the Allies at all. Our ships were getting sunk. Our men were getting killed. Um, our bases were getting overrun overseas. But when he came in, it was a little bit different. The United States was very much ascendant. That doesn't mean he was safe, but it definitely meant that at least he knew that he was joining a team that was definitely on the winning side. And they could probably sniff the end of the war coming because of what was going on. You just had to look at a map. Yeah, I mean, by that point, when they were heading overseas, uh, they would have already known about the, um, well, it would have been very close to the time that Paris was liberated. I think if Paris was liberated on the 25th of August of 44, uh, we would have just come through the breakout at St. Lowe. We would have almost captured uh, those – how many German divisions did we almost capture at the Filet Gap? Yeah. Uh, you know, when we did the encirclement there. Um, so we were definitely, like you said, we had momentum. Things were moving along quite well. So um, so August 9th is when they actually boarded the, – the name of the ship that they went over on was the USS West Point, hmm. formerly known as the SS America – Oh, that yeah. was a big ship. Okay. Yeah. The troop ship was destined to carry the regiment to the shores of England. So uh, they crammed a lot of guys on this ship. You know, this wasn't like the Queen Mary where they could fit 10,000 guys on there. This was mm-hmm. a little bit smaller, but still 3,000 guys packed into the hull of the ship with all their gear um, was, uh, I would imagine, not very comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. So, so you left Boston on the USS West Point. Boston. Is that correct? Boston. How long did it take you to get over to England? Well, it was pretty safe and uh, pretty. But before that, you know, they the little ships they had to have before they kind of got those uh, Germans under control. They'd have to have escorts, you know, to escort them, or they'd sunk them before they even got about in the ocean, you know. But they, they had. When I went over, they didn't have to worry much about him, you know. I don't remember ever getting sick or anything, you know, <laughs> going over. But <laughs> a lot, a lot of guys did get sick. Oh yeah, a lot of guys couldn't take it, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so when you arrived in England, you were in Liverpool, is that correct? Liverpool, that's where we went to come in the backside of England, you know, uh-huh. see. It was terrible for those English people, I tell you, they went through hell on mm-hmm. earth. So when you were in training, did you always know you were going to go to Europe, or did you think you'd have to go to the Pacific? Well, I was, I didn't know at the time, but yeah. I was hoping we'd go to Germany because uh, Japan was worse because they, yeah. they they would kill us. Mm. a lot of people, you know. And mm. I was thankful that I was I went to Germany. That's where my that's where my great that's where my family all came from years ago. I was wow. German, yeah. Uh-huh. So when you crossed the channel to Europe. You came on. You came on to Omaha Beach in September of '44. Yeah, know, after after, after the invasion. Yeah, yeah, sure. Okay. And after you saw that 
how the see the Germans had that quite a while, and they oh my gosh they had such you wonder how anybody invaded that you know uh, oh big and they made the they, they made the they made the ones they captured they made them do the work you know and I imagine that was terrible mm-hmm. but they. They, when we went in, they still had the big posts, barbed wire, and just everything you could think of. But of course, it had already been invaded, so all we had to do was walk in, you know, mm-hmm. so we we had it pretty easy. <laughs> that, let, me, let me bring the yeah. audience somewhere, just really quick. So what he's saying, if I'm if I got the timeline correct, Ryan, is this would have been September of '44. That's correct. A hundred days to the day after D-Day. So so three months have gone by, which is not a long time. And you got to remember, these guys would have been reading newspapers, watching newsreels at movie theaters and whatnot about what the largest invasion force in history up to that time, uh, D-Day, the invasion of Normandy. They would have understood the casualties that were incurred there and how historic it was. I mean, talk about being an eyewitness to, to history, to be able to pull in there three months later on these ships and, and go on the beach. And he talked about the sort of things that he would have saw. They, he still saw the barbed wire. They still saw um, the hedgehogs. Um, they, he talked about the German soldiers. The first time he would have seen a German soldier would have been as a POW uh, probably unloading supplies and cleaning up the beach. I mean, right. it, it's just, it's, yeah. it, it's amazing to me. I just wish I could kind of go into, you know, their mind and be able to see this again. Cause we don't have a lot of newsreel footage, uh, of, of that, at least not relative today. I'll add one more thing. It would almost be like, so today we hear about a lot about what's going on in, in Ukraine and in, in particular in Bakhmut. And we see, we have the advantage of seeing an incredible amount of news footage of this event it would be like um, it would be like being able to to go to that battlefield, to be able to go there and see firsthand this thing that has dominated the news cycle ever since it occurred. So, any rate, really, real cool clip you got there. Yeah, I mean, well, I think, um, and like you just touched on, you know, the fact that they would have been hearing about this in the newspapers or anything, and the fact that he described what they saw. It was making an impact on them, and this is the vaunted Omaha Beach that they're yep. coming in on just just a hundred days after the battle, and there is still all this detritus of war all over the place. Yes. You know the hedgehogs, the 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 asparagus, the Rommel's asparagus, and all that kind of stuff. All the the barbed wire, you know, the blown up, you know, uh, um, you know, uh, casemates and everything else there. Um, but you know, there's in this in this division um, handbook or division history that we'll post on the website. You really need to go through and look at that and read through it because they've got some fantastic pictures in here. Mm-hmm. One picture of them coming in on at Omaha Beach, and all these guys are in their their landing craft. But mm-hmm. and you look up and you know that the cliff that is today, um, where the top of the American Cemetery is back then was above on that cliff was just all tents. Yeah. It was just a tent city up there. That was like the first real encampment that you would get to as soon as you came across everything. So um, it's just pretty amazing, you know, um, you know everything that, that these guys remember, you and know, he, he all spoke, this time later. Totally, and he spoke to it. Couldn't imagine what it had been like to be someone who had to go on the Invasion Beach. Well, for our audience, we have a series that is features Bill Parker, 
and he he landed on Omaha Beach and survived it. And he speaks directly to what that um, what that assault was like. So if you want yeah. a little more firsthand personal experience or accounts of what happened, check out that podcast. Yeah, for sure. All right. So next to be a really short clip uh, where he just talks, he touches on the fact that this was a brand new division that he was in. But I was just lucky that my division had, didn't have to go over to, for quite a while. We we were in brand new division, and yeah, like we said, a brand new division um, that was formed just a few years earlier, and they were they went over after D Day. Um, one of the things I wanted to mention here is as they came ashore in August of forty five or sorry, August of 44, they then made their way up to uh, up through St. Lowe and all the way down through Paris, and they ended up down in uh, in this staging area in August uh, named Baron Court. This was October 15th of 44, and that's where they got to meet General Patton, okay? Mm. And General Patton, actually, this is from the, the regimental history here. Um, the, the, the heading here is General Patton tells them how. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, so he says, the next morning, companies were organized and settled into their respective areas. Lieutenant General George S. Patton, commander of the 3rd Army, visited the division that same afternoon and talked to a group of officers and non-coms from the various units assembled at the division CP. Having heard considerable about the general's spicy speeches, <laughs> they were prepared for something out of the ordinary in the way of the talk by a CEO. They were not disappointed. <laughs> His effect did not depend on language alone, however. The most emphatic thing he did was can't countermand most of what the men had been taught for the past two years. <laughs> the general barked, quote, there are three ways to die. Dig in, lie down, and don't shoot until you see the whites of their eyes. To dig in is just to tell the blankety-blank airplanes where to bomb. Mess up the scenery and cause you to get dirty and tired. To hit the ground, Doughboy, is just to allow the Germans to get a better shot at you. Germans don't have white eyes. They're dirty yellow. <laughs> and he explained that their eyes are yellow because, uh, because instead of white because they contain a certain extraneous matter. <laughs> Was that is that from... You know, the vital bodily fluids thing from, you know, uh, 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 Dr. Strangelove? Is that what they had inside <laughs> Could be. Of I don't know. They don't really elaborate. So then he says uh, he advocated marching fire, advancing in a skirmish line with weapons blazing from the hip or shoulder. To men who had agitated the ground in the better part of Texas, Louisiana, California, digging foxholes and slit trenches, and who had been balled out time and time again for not hitting the dirt, this was rank heresy. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, just march forward and shoot them. And then a tiger tank shows up, and they're like, Oh crap! I'm not so sure what Patton yeah. just said is the right thing to do. I yeah, mean, exactly. Oh, I mean, the other thing about Patton is famous for saying is, you know, if you're going to die USOB, die vain gloriously. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Your job's not to die for your country; it's to start make the other poor bastard die for his. Right. Yeah. Oh my God, dude, he is such a a freaking. Uh, oh, you know, could you imagine if <laughs> if if there was no war or if he didn't join the army? What else? Would George Patton know. have been suited for in civilian life? Maybe a a, a an gangster, maybe, maybe an, attorney. an attorney. There you go. <laughs> I mean, he, he's not going to sell shoes. You know, he's not. Gonna, I don't know. <laughs> oh my gosh! 
Yeah, he's not going to be a doctor because he just smacked somebody if they were complaining about something, you know. So, so, so a little, just a little fun for our listeners. If you if you can think of a, the perfect job for the peacetime version of George Patton, who never went to the military, <laughs> please go to this video on our Facebook site and 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 put that on there. What you think George Patton should have been, and we will read them on our next series. <laughs> Oh, that should be awesome. Oh, hell yeah. oh, man. Hopefully we can repeat them. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So in the next, the next clip here, Keith talks about how whenever he was there in this area, they actually got a pass to go into Paris. Each company had a clerk that did all the business and passes and go to town and stuff. And I, I was pretty lucky. I don't know where he liked me. I, anyway, but... I got the first pass in the company Google. <laughs> and in the same way, I got to go to London. Oh, know. really? Yeah. He, so I, I always treated him real nice, you know. And he had a lot of responsibility. He almost run that company, uh, you know, for his business concerned. <laughs> so it pays, to, it pays to be a nice you guy. Know, God, it? Right. You never get too many friends. That's right. Never get too many friends. <laughs> he sounds like... He sounds like the staff sergeant version of Harry Potter. <laughs> you yes, never have right. too many friends. Just, just be the cool dude. And things will work out in the end. And I'll, I'll, I'll also say, as the staff sergeant, I mean, the person who would end up running the, you know, the, the, the unit, the, the help run the unit during uh, combat, which is coming up shortly for him, would have been people like the staff sergeants, the NCOs. Those were the, those were the real backbone of the, uh, of any army. But uh, really cool that a chance to, I mean, right. They got deployed and they're about to uh, enter the fray. Yeah. And he kind of had one last chance to go out. and Here's this kid from Central Illinois hanging out in Europe, frolicking. That's pretty cool. Yeah, going to Paris, nonetheless, right after they were liberated. I bet it was a good time there. I yeah, bet it was totally. a lot of fun. And he was single. He didn't have a girlfriend. I don't think he was married or anything like that. Actually, yeah, he said he did. He didn't have a girlfriend or anything. So, and and we should probably check on that before we drop this podcast. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, another thing is, you know, these guys. I mean, don't get me wrong. The best way to see Europe is not during the war as an invading army. It's it's, it's as a civilian and you go yeah. there to hang out. But because he would have, you know, he knew that he was about to join a battle and could die. Think about how much even more precious, how much more you live in the moment. Um, you know, when, when you're, you're faced with combat and you've got one last chance to go out and see things that you probably never would have seen otherwise. So anyway, pretty cool. This concludes episode one of the Keith Munt series. Listen next week as Keith heads into battle, his first battle, and also the first battle for his unit. Hello, Warrior Next Door listeners. I've got two big announcements that I want to tell you about. First, we just launched our merchandise store on Etsy.com. So if you find our mission at the Warrior Next Door podcast worthwhile, please consider visiting our Etsy store and check out our merchandise. The proceeds will help us cover our costs such as website fees, podcast distribution fees, online recording fees, and travel expenses. As you know, our mission is to honor veterans who have fought to preserve our freedom as well as educate future generations. As our veterans fade into history, we believe it's up to all of us to pick up the torch and continue to hold dear the values, experiences, lessons, and gifts that our veterans have imparted. 
so that the new generations can stand on their shoulders. To check out our wares, go to Etsy.com. That's E-T-S-Y.com and search for the Warrior Next Door podcast store. You can also visit our Facebook page or our webpage at thewarriornextdoor.com to find a link to the store. Second, are you tired of waiting each week for a new episode in the series to be published? Well, sign up now for our premium subscription program where you'll get each new series available to you uncut in its entirety on the release day of the first episode. No more waiting from week to week as the previous episode just ended on a cliffhanger. Now you can binge listen to the entire series when the first episode comes out. Don't worry, you can still listen for free as you always have. Just go to Warrior Next Door Podcast Facebook page or the warriornextdoor.com website and look for the premium subscriber link to sign up. You can sign up anytime and cancel anytime. We also want to note that 10% of all net proceeds for the Etsy store and the subscriber service will go to a veteran-supporting charity. Thanks for listening, guys, and thanks for your support. All right, everybody, uh, just a few little extra comments we want to add here. Uh, sometimes we do some things where we go through viewer mail, listener mail, uh, comments that we have on Facebook, uh, comments that are made in our reviews um, on um, the pod, kind of like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And um, we got a couple here we want to kind of throw in here at the end of this show. Uh, one is from one of our listeners, Lee Thomas Walker. Um, and uh, we just wanted to give a shout out to Lee. Um, he sent us a great picture of him in a Warrior Next Door t-shirt on the Bolivar Peninsula of Texas. And um, it was our first picture from a fan uh, wearing one of our new t-shirts. And he also posted a very touching comment to us about the podcast. And I'd like to read it to you. He says, I absolutely love the podcast. More importantly, I love what y'all are doing. Never mind how important it is to document the veterans' experiences and to share them with us. What I love most is what it does for other veterans. So many have stuffed their stories down in a box and never learned to deal with them. Then they stumble upon your podcast and hear another veteran talking about their experiences and it encourages them to talk about their own. Then 10 more hear that story and want to talk about theirs, then 100 and so on. I hope y'all can reach all of them eventually and start a healing process. As much as I love hearing the stories, I consider it an insignificant byproduct. The real beauty in your work is the therapy that it provides for the veterans. Thank you so much. Your team is serving veterans very well. Well, I got to say for Tony and I, um, this is a very sincerely appreciated Lee and um you know, comments like that uh, really put a charge in us and uh, makes us want to work harder. So uh, we couldn't ask for a better compliment. And I want to thank you so much for those comments. Please, anybody out there, if you're listening, uh, we love hearing from you guys. So please post something on our Facebook page uh, or, you know, even better, go to Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're listening to us on and leave a review um, on that platform. That helps with our statistics uh, in the eyes of these podcasting platforms. And, um, you know, it just helps us all, all the way around. So if you could uh, do us a solid and do that. And again, thank you everybody for listening. We sincerely appreciate it.